War and Sacrifice The Story of the Aztec Empire The Valley of Mexico has seen the rise and fall of many great civilizations, a highland plateau surrounded by mountains and volcanoes. The valley was once a fertile oasis, a hidden paradise where ancient humans could hunt wild game, fish the lakes, and engage in agriculture on a large scale. The human population of the valley steadily climbed to a height of roughly 1 million in pre-Columbian times, making it one of the most populous regions on the planet. Humans had been living in the valley for at least 12,000 years, although there is some disputed evidence that suggests human activity as far back as 20,000 years ago. These early inhabitants were hunter-gatherers who pursued megafauna such as the Columbian mammoth a grand prize that could provide meat and other useful materials for many people. The brave hunters faced these gigantic beasts with nothing more than a flint-tipped spear and an enormous amount of courage. There is evidence suggesting they might have made use of pit traps that were dug on the swampy edge of a lake. A mammoth could either be carefully herded into the trap by the group of hunters, or one might eventually fall into the pit on its own by sheer accident. Agriculture in the valley was still on the far-off horizon at the time, so the early human inhabitants likely supplemented their diet with wild fruits, grains, and pseudo-cereals, such as amaranth. One of the grains was a variety of lowland grass known broadly as teosinte, a direct ancestor of maize, or as it's commonly known in North America, corn. When the mammoths and other megafauna of the Ice Age went extinct, the human inhabitants of the valley gradually switched their survival strategy from a semi-nomadic hunter's existence to a life of subsistence farming. The sedentary lifestyle of cultivating crops resulted in the development of villages, small settlements that were basically farming collectives. During this period of small-scale urbanization, the first identifiable culture rose to dominance in the valley. They were known as the Talico people. This was also the name of their town, a sprawling settlement that was situated close to the modern-day place of the same name, Talico. It was one of the first significant population centers to arise in the valley, steadily growing along the western shore of Lake Texcoco between 1200 and 200 BC. After the Talico culture waned and disappeared, they were succeeded by several more empires, culminating in the rise of the legendary and perhaps even somewhat mythological Toltec Empire. According to the Aztecs who eventually replaced them, the Toltecs ruled the valley for over 600 years. They were held in high regard by the Aztecs, who mimicked certain aspects of their culture and society. But it has been speculated the Aztecs were merely looking at the distant past with rose-tinted glasses. The archaeologist and historian Daniel Garrison Brinton argued that the Toltecs, as described in Aztec sources, were actually one of a handful of city-states that shared a similar dialect. He believed the Aztec view of the Toltecs was the result of the tendency of the human mind to glorify the good old days, and not necessarily reflective of any historic reality. Regardless of their status in the regional hierarchy of the valley, the Toltec Empire was destined to fall after several decades of conflict with tribes to the north. It was a war of attrition, with both sides receiving heavy losses over the course of many years. To make matters worse, 
This prolonged period of warfare happened to coincide with a terrible famine that dragged on for seven years. The result was a number of mass migrations away from the area, which further weakened the Toltecs' defenses. The end of their centuries-long reign was nigh, and with it would come the rise of a new culture, a scruffy tribe of nomads who called themselves the Mexica. According to the Dominican friar and historian Diego Duran, the enemies of the Toltecs mounted a final offensive in the year 1115 AD. After a year of fighting, the Toltec capital city of Tula fell into the hands of the invaders, and the Toltec empire was no more. The survivors were forced to flee in all directions in search of a new home. As a side note, a few of these wandering bands of warriors pushed into the highlands of Guatemala. This hostile invasion resulted in the rise of the Quiche people, who became one of the dominant Mayan cultures throughout the western highlands. Not long after the defeat of the Toltec Empire, a wandering tribe from the north arrived in the valley. They were a band of semi-nomadic warriors who called themselves the Mexica, or, alternatively, the Tenochca. At this point in time, the valley was already divided into a number of competing city-states. The two most powerful of these fiefdoms, the Cahuacan on the south shore of Lake Texcoco and Azcapotzalco on the west shore. The Mexica settled on the west shore of Lake Texcoco in 1250, but the Tepnex of Azcapotzalco soon ousted the unwanted squatters from their land. Finding themselves homeless once again, they appealed to the ruler of the Cahuacan who gave the Mexica permission to settle on the barons of Tizapan in 1299. In 1323, the king of the Cahuacan appointed his daughter to rule over the affairs of the Mexica. Unbeknownst to the king, the Conversely, they also might have been hostile to the idea of getting bossed around by an outsider. Whatever the case may have been, the Mexica revealed their ghoulish deed during a festival dinner when a priest came out wearing the flayed hide of the dead princess as part of the ritual. Horrified and outraged by this murderous act, the king immediately expelled the Mexica from his lands. The Mexica were capable warriors but they were vastly outnumbered and had no choice but to flee from the wrath of the king's armies. Once again, they found themselves wandering an unfamiliar landscape, seeking a suitable place to call their own. According to Aztec mythology, the god, Huitzilopochtli, instructed the Aztecs to found their city at the location where they would see an eagle perched on a cactus, with a snake clutched in its talons. The Aztecs claimed to have encountered this very same vision on a small island on the west side of Lake Texcoco. Their search for a place to belong was finally over. Ever industrious, the fledgling Aztec nation increased their crop yield potential by constructing a series of chinampas, artificial islands formed by piling up mud dredged from the bottom of the lake. The chinampas were separated by a rough gridwork of canals enabling easy access via canoe and eliminating the need for irrigation. In time, their tiny little island grew to cover almost 35 square miles. The Aztecs named it Tenochtitlan, the capital city of what would become the most powerful empire in the history of the valley. 
In the beginning, Tenochtitlan ally with the city of Azcapotzalco, following their laws and paying tribute to its ruler, Tezozamoc. With the aid of its conscripted Mexican warriors, Azcapotzalco expanded into an imperialistic empire. At the same time, the city of Texcoco was also branching outward, and the two giants of the valley inevitably began to wage war. With the ferocious warriors of the Tenochtitlan on their side, Azcapotzalco soundly defeated their rival in battle. As a reward for their service, Texcoco was given to the Mexica as a tributary province. In 1426, King Tezozamoc passed away, leaving the kingdom in peril of falling into the hands of an imposter to the throne. A civil war broke out between opposing factions, both claiming to be the rightful successor to the throne. The Mexica supported the dead king's original choice, his son, Teotzin. But Teotzin's half-brother, Maxla, seized the throne in an act of violent insurrection. He turned against anyone who opposed him, including the ruler of the Tenochtitlan, Emperor Shima Popoka. The two exchanged a steady stream of insults, threats, and failed assassination attempts. Maxla famously sent the emperor a gift of woman's clothing to further insult him. The enemy assassins finally managed to kill their target in 1427, sending a clear message to the Mexica and anyone else who dared defy the authority of the new king. They could either tow the line or do as they were told, or they could die. However, the Mexica of Tenochtitlan were not afraid to fight. Their new emperor, the legendary Itzequatl, also staunchly refused to recognize Maxla's authority. The usurper of the throne answered to this continued public defiance with a blockade around their city and demands of larger tribute payments. At the same time, he also turned his military might on the city of Texcoco. The king of Texcoco was forced to flee, traveling to the city of Huexo Cinco to convince their king to join the rebellion. In the meantime, the Mexica enlisted help from the city of Tlacopan. Although it was a Tapanac city, Tlacopan did not recognize their new king as their rightful heir to the throne. Thus united this coalition of four mini-empires declaring war on Maxla in 1427. The coalition emerged victorious in 1428, and Maxla was sacrificed to the gods at the hand of his old and bitter enemy the newly restored king of Texcoco. Although the Tapanac-controlled lands were divided amongst the conquerors, and the Tapanac dynasty was left on the back pages of history, Buexo Cinco dropped out of the coalition soon after the war was over, leaving the other three cities to enact a consolidation of power known as the Triple Alliance. It was decided early on that Tenochtitlan would be responsible for the brunt of the alliance's military activities while the other two cities would oversee various other essential duties. All three cities shared the land and spoils that were acquired through warfare, with the Mexica and the city Texcoco both receiving two-fifths of the share. The remaining 20% would go to Tlacopan. The rulers of all three cities took on the title of Elder Speaker, lending more weight to their voices than the rulers of the other city-states in the valley. In this manner, the mighty Aztec Empire was born, and they would go on to rule the valley for the next hundred years. Itzequatl and his nephew Teclelo were the primary architects of the fledgling Aztec Empire. Teclelo 
had risen to a position of prominence during the war against the Tapanaks in the late 1420s. When his uncle ascended to the throne, he made Teclelo an important advisor to the court, a position he held up until his death in 1487. These two tacticians conspired to make a sweeping reform of Aztec religion, politics, and society as a whole. Teclelo is alleged to have ordered the burning of the old Aztec books of lore. He claimed they contained distortions of truth and outright lies, and that it was, quote-unquote, not wise that all the people should know the paintings. He then went on to rewrite the history of the Aztecs, placing the Mexica in a more central role. Teclelel was said to be the real power behind the throne, a clever propagandist who injected a sort of murderous hyper-patriotism into the consciousness of the Aztec people. His plan was to create a society of loyal and fiercely nationalistic warriors, and it was a resounding success. War was an integral part of the Mesoamerican society as a whole. However, the art of war was a much different beast in the Valley of Mexico than elsewhere in the world. They rarely committed the wholesale slaughter of their enemies. In fact, killing the enemy on the battlefield was generally looked down on as being sloppy and unnecessary. A war might be fought over any number of grievances, but regardless of the circumstances, the end game of any armed conflict was to capture as many people as possible for the act of human sacrifice. Many important rituals culminated in the death of an unwilling victim. The gods of Mesoamerican mythology demanded that the blood be spilled on a regular basis in exchange for blessings, such as a successful harvest, victory on the battlefield, or divine protection from natural disasters. There was only one way to maintain a steady stream of sacrificial bloodletting without thinning their own numbers, and that was to frequently engage in armed hostilities. All Aztec commoners received military training when they were young, and they were duty-bound to drop everything and go off to fight whenever it was required of them by their leaders. In order to maintain the high level of enthusiasm necessary to motivate his people to fight constant battles, to Clelo, pushed the concept of Aztecs being the special chosen ones of the gods. He also elevated the tribal god and folk hero, Huitzilopochtli, to the very top of the pantheon of deities. His actions ignited a nationalistic fever that burned hot in the hearts and the minds of the Aztec people. They were the chosen ones, and domination of the valley was both their birthright and their destiny. Declalel saw the wisdom in increasing the level and prevalence of human sacrifice, a tactic he applied during a period of natural disasters that began in 1446. To ensure a constant supply of victims, the coldly calculating royal advisor introduced a form of warfare known as the Flower Wars. The Flower Wars were formal events where the Triple Alliance would meet their enemies for a battle at an agreed-upon place and time. The only purpose of the conflict was for both sides to capture as many prisoners as possible before the battle was over, thus ensuring the supply of victims needed for their sacrifice rituals. This decidedly ghoulish practice remained a regular part of Aztec war culture until the invasion of the Spanish conquistadors. To strengthen the position and standing of the Aztec nobility, Teclalo helped create and enforce sumptuary laws that prevented commoners from wearing lip plugs gold armbands, and cotton cloaks. A commoner could only rise in social status if he captured a certain number of prisoners in battle. 
The more prisoners he captured for the never-ending blood sacrifices, the higher he could ascend in both military rank and on the ladder of Aztec society. This ensured top performance from the warriors who sought to increase their social standing and also helped to widen the chasm between the rich and poor. In later years, the ability to join the ranks of nobility through military actions was completely rescinded, no matter how many prisoners a commoner might capture on the battlefield. The chance at a better life was now lost in the constant thundering of the war drums, and a dictatorship was born. Despite this heavy-handed rule of law at home, the Aztecs took a surprisingly hands-off approach to ruling their conquered territories. They would usually allow the current ruler to resume his duties after he conceded defeat, and the locals were free to practice their own religion, as long as they incorporated the gods of the Aztecs into their beliefs. The Aztecs were mainly interested in receiving their tributes in a timely fashion, and they wouldn't interfere with local government affairs unless the tribute payments stopped coming. This resulted in many tributary provinces rebelling after only a few years of absentee rule from the Aztecs. They were forced to expand much time and energy into the recapture and pacification of these rogue states, greatly slowing the progress of their imperialistic expansion across Mesoamerica. As the decades passed, the city, Atalacapan, began to falter, and the emperor of Tenochtitlan started to refer to himself as the eldest speaker, indicating his status as the most powerful of the three rulers. As Tlacopan continued to decline, the Triple Alliance gradually became a double alliance. Texcoco also began to experience a long series of misfortunes, and only Tenochtitlan remained as the sole ruler of the valley. The beginning of the end came in 1519 with the arrival of the Spanish expedition leader Hernán Cortés. He landed in the Yucatán with approximately 630 men, most of whom were armed with only a sword and a shield. Cortés had been removed as the expedition's commander by the governor of Cuba, but he stole the boats and left without permission. Cortés soon encountered a shipwrecked Spaniard named Geronimo de Aguilar, who joined the expedition as a translator. They sailed west to the Campeche, where Cortés was able to negotiate a peace treaty through his interpreter after a brief battle. The king of Campeche gave Cortés a second translator, a bilingual Nahuamea slave named La Malinche. Aguilar translated from Spanish to Mayan, and La Malinche translated from Mayan to Nuhatl. Malinche quickly learned Spanish, and she became a central figure in the conquest of the Aztecs, acting as Hernan's translator for both language and culture throughout the length of his expedition. Cortes sailed from Campeche to Sempuala, a tributary province of the Aztec Triple Alliance. He founded the town of Veracruz nearby, creating a place where he could meet with the ambassadors from the reigning Aztec Emperor Moctezuma II. When the ambassadors returned to Tenochtitlan, Cortes went to Sempuala to meet with the local Totonac leaders. When the Totonac ruler confided his various grievances against the Mexica overlords of the valley, Cortes convinced him to imprison an imperial tribute collector. Cortes then secretly released the prisoner, convincing the outraged imperial representative that he had no knowledge of the incident before letting him go. Having been tricked into inadvertently declaring war on the immensely powerful Aztec nation, the penitent Totonics had no choice but to agree to supply the silver-tongued Cortes with 20 companies of battle-hardened warriors for his campaign against their oppressors. After this incident, 
Several of the Spanish soldiers attempted a mutiny. When Cortes discovered the plot, he sank his ships in the harbor to remove any possibility of escaping back to Cuba. He then led a march to Tlaxcala, another powerful empire that was sworn enemies of the Tenochtitlan. After fighting several close battles against their enemies, Cortes eventually convinced the leaders of Tlaxcala to order their general to stand down. Impressed with the foreign invader and his reckless bravery, they agreed to help him subdue the much-hated Aztecs. Having now secured an alliance with the people of Tlaxcala, Cortes traveled to the basin of Mexico with over 5,000 Tlaxcalans and 400 Totonacs, in addition to the Spanish soldiers. During his stay in the city of Cholula, Cortes claimed to have received word of a planned ambush against the Spanish. In retaliation to this alleged plot against his life, he ordered his troops to attack and kill a large number of unarmed citizens who were gathered in the main square of the city. Following the massacre at Cholula, Cortes entered Tenochtitlan, where he was treated as a guest and given shelter in the palace of a former emperor. After six weeks of increasing tensions, two Spaniards who were left behind in Veracruz were killed in an altercation with a member of the Aztec nobility. Cortes used this incident as an excuse to secretly take Matsukuma prisoner. For several months afterwards, Matsukuma continued to rule the kingdom as a prisoner of Hernan Cortes. This explosive situation came to a head in 1520, when a second and considerably larger Spanish expedition arrived with the goal of arresting Cortes for treason. Before he met with the leader of the expedition, the crafty Cortes persuaded his lieutenants to betray their commander and join Cortes in his pursuit of gold and riches. As Cortes was busy dealing with the unexpected threat to his plans of plundering this new and wondrous land, another disaster began to unfold. Hernan's second-in-command, Pedro de Alvarado, ordered the massacre of a group of Aztec nobility. This rash command was given in response to witnessing a ritual of human sacrifice. The Aztecs retaliated by attacking the palace where the Spanish had set up their headquarters. When Cortes came back to the city, his party was immediately set upon by a crowd of Aztec warriors, and he was forced to fight his way to the palace. He took Masakuma up to the roof of the palace and forced him to command his subjects to stand down. By this point, however, the ruling council of Tenochtitlan had already voted to depose Motokazuma, electing his brother, Kuitlawak, as the new emperor. As Motokazuma pleaded with the mob below, one of the warriors in the crowd struck him in the head with a sling stone. He died several days later, forever disgraced as a traitorous coward in the eyes of his people. Realizing the gravity of their situation, Cortes planned a hasty midnight departure from the palace. This harrowing evening became known as La Noche Triste, or the Night of Sorrow. In order to put the Aztecs off their guard, Cortes proposed a one-week ceasefire. By the end of the ceasefire, the Spanish interlopers promised they would return any stolen treasure in exchange for their privilege of leaving the city alive. The Aztecs had damaged bridges on four of the eight causeways into the island city so the Spaniards devised a portable bridge they could use in order to cross any unspanned sections of water. Cortes ordered most of the stolen gold and other values to be packed up and carried away, and he gave the Spanish soldiers his permission to help themselves to as much of the remaining treasures they could carry. This invitation would lead to the deaths of many soldiers later that night, as they were too overburdened with riches to navigate the causeways and other obstacles they encountered on their way out of the city. 
On the night of July 1st, 1520, Cortez and his man left the compound, heading west toward the Tlacopan Causeway. The Spaniards made it out of the complex unnoticed, creeping their way through the sleeping city under the cover of a heavy rainstorm. Before they reached the causeway, they were noticed by a group of elite Aztec warriors known as the Eagle Warriors, who sounded the alarm. As the Spaniards and their native allies ran for the causeway, hundreds of canoes appeared in the waters to pelt them with a deadly rain of projectile weapons. Dozens of people were lost in the assault, bleeding and screaming as they sank beneath the weight of their pilfered gold in their pockets. The hapless expedition struggled their way across the causeway in the blinding rain, many of them falling their way to a watery doom as Cortez quickly drew ahead amidst a vanguard of horsemen. He reached the end of the causeway and ordered his horsemen to press on, leaving the rest of the expedition to fend for themselves on the treacherous crossing. Most of them never made it to the other side. As a trickle of survivors dragged themselves past, Cortez and his horsemen returned to the causeway. They found Pedro de Alvarado there, unhorsed and badly wounded. He was in the company of a handful of Spaniards and their native allies. All of the artillery had been lost in the one-sided battle, as had most of the horses. It is not certain how many lives were claimed during this bungled escape, but it's been estimated that 450 Spaniards and nearly 4,000 native allies were massacred in the attack. Mutakazuma's son was also killed along with the Tepanac prince and the king of Texcoco and many of his siblings. The remaining Spaniards and their allies fought their way around the north end of Lake Zampango. After a week of fighting on the run, they turned to face their pursuers at the Battle of Atumba, where, according to Cortez himself, the Aztec commander was killed by Hernan's own hand, thus winning the battle for the Spaniards. This gave the expedition a brief respite that allowed them to reach the city of Tlaxcala, a safe harbor for them to rest and heal. Exhausted, Injured and shell-shocked from the day's fighting and running for their lives, Cortez and his crew hunkered down and planned a siege of Tenochtitlan. As the Spaniards planned their revenge, a devastating smallpox outbreak hit Tenochtitlan. This outbreak alone killed more than 50% of the region's population, including the emperor and many other members of the nobility. While the new emperor attempted to deal with the smallpox outbreak, Cortez raised an army of Tlaxcalans, Texcocans, Teutonics, and many others who held a simmering resentment against the oppressive yoke of Aztec rule. With a combined army of up to 100,000 warriors, Cortez marched back into the valley and plowed over any Aztec resistance he encountered along the way. He quickly captured all the smaller city-states around the lakeshore and surrounding mountains. Cortez built new ships from the remains of the scuttled vessels in Lake Texcoco, regrouped his soldiers, and laid siege on Tenochtitlan for a period of several months. When he felt the time was right, the Spanish-led forces assaulted the Aztec city. The attackers took on heavy casualties, but they ultimately prevailed against their disease-weakened enemies. Ecstatic over their victory, the Spaniards and their allies wasted no time in tearing down the temples and burning the city to the ground. With the headquarters of the once mighty Aztec Empire reduced to rubble and ash, the Spaniards continued their campaign across Mesoamerica, spreading illness and death wherever they went. It is estimated that up to 90% of native population died, most of them perishing from the diseases that were carried over by the Spanish invaders. 
The warriors who were left standing after the rampaging European diseases were simply no match against the Spanish artillery. Cortes wasted no time in the construction of a new capital over the remains of Tenochtitlan, which is now modern-day Mexico City. The lakes which had given life to countless generations were drained to manage periodic flooding, and the Spanish declared the valley as their own. Although many native residents perished during the siege of Tenochtitlan, the indigenous people of the area still had a strong presence in the new city. They were settled into two main areas of the island, designated San Juan Tenochtitlan and Santiago, each with a municipal council that functioned the entire colonial period. In the early 1800s, there was a decade-long insurgency against the Spanish Empire, ending in 1821 when New Spain officially became the independent nation. The fledgling country was named after its capital, Mexico City, and its flag featured the Aztec imagery of an eagle perched on a nopal cactus from the distant echoes of a long-dead empire. A new national identity sprang to life. In just a few hundred years, the Mexica went from being a nomadic band of undesirables to wielding enormous power over hundreds of thousands of royal subjects, all of them ready and willing to fight to the death for the Aztec nation. Brave warriors or blood-crazed zealots, the Aztecs were inarguably a force to be reckoned with. If it weren't for the inadvertent biological terrorism that was carried over by Cortes and his men, it is debatable whether his siege of Tenochtitlan would have been a success. Personally, I believe there's a decent chance he may have ended up on a sacrificial altar instead. <laughs>